The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
morning, everybody. Good morning at the beginning of this new year that isn't quite the beginning and the new year that we had hoped. So after this particularly hard and painful week, it is particularly good to be together. So welcome, everybody. I am Vanessa Southern. I'm the senior minister of this community, the First Unitarian Universalist Community of San Francisco. I'm really glad to welcome all of you here. I hope you are cozy and safe and sane at home or wherever this finds you. I want to thank everybody who made this Sunday possible. To our musicians, Reiko Oda Lane, who got us off the way we need to in these moments, with the world vibrating beneath our feet with sacred music. And to Christine Toulis, who's here today, again with us, a real gift to play her harp, the instrument of the angels. No doubt you will agree if you haven't heard her play already. You're in for a treat and to Asher Davison, who will be leading us in song. I want to thank also Jonathan Silk, who is mastering the sound and the AV, as always, to our camera people, Eric Shackelford and Shuli Ong, to my fellow worship leader, Carmen Barsity, founding member and leader of the Faithful Fools Ministry and a participant and member here who I am blessed to have leading worship today. To Joe Chapeau who is monitoring the chat, so if you have questions or needs, please feel free to type them in and he will help you to Thomas Brown who let us in and welcomed us this morning, and Dan Bernard who's here doing the same, to Amy Kelly who made this space blossom this morning when winter is around us, so lovely to be present to the blossoming, and Alex Starr, who will be hosting us on our coffee hour. If you are with us for the first time this morning, I encourage you to find and download, if you haven't already, and have access to the order of service so that you can follow along with us in worship this morning, and also to feel invited to join us after service for our coffee hour. So welcome, everybody. We are going to light our candle, the blue candle that we have lit every Sunday since we have been apart but still together during this COVID season. As a reminder that you all are here in spirit until such time as we can be together again in body. Welcome. And so we begin our worship this morning together. And let's do that, opening ourselves in song, the first opening hymn of the morning, very appropriate for this week, is hymn number 170, if you have your gray hymnals at home, but the words and music are in your order of service. We are a gentle, angry people. Please join.
we are singing, singing for our lives. We are a gentle, angry people, and we are singing, singing for our justice-seeking people, and we are singing, singing for our lives. We are a justice-seeking people, and we are singing, singing for our the chalice this morning we say together we light this chalice for the light of truth the warmth of love and the fire of commitment we light this symbol of our faith 
as we gather together. So if you are new and visiting us and you notice one of the places to fill out our visitor form, our, our welcoming form, please do so because it'll give you access to the weekly order of service and a quick link to the service and also to the um, newsletter that comes out, which has events of interest to you, I hope, um, all of which are open and available to all of us. And so I'd avail you of that opportunity or set of opportunities. But for all of us, please consider joining coffee hour, which will happen right after service. Come meet a couple of people, connect before going off into your day, which Today, even just at virtual church might include the 1 p.m. gathering of the Council for Committee Chairs or the 1 p.m. gathering for a speech, a talk and discussion led by Millie Phillips on ecohumanism. So your morning is already scheduled for you, or at least the possibilities are. I wanted to hold up a couple of things that are coming up just to make sure if you have a chance that you put them on your calendar. Next Saturday, we have two fantastic programs. Actually, we have a whole series of incredible speakers coming in January to be with us. But next Saturday at 11 o'clock, Paula Cole-Jones, who is the former head of DRUM, which is the Unitarian Universalists Diverse Revolutionary Multicultural Ministries Group, and the founder of Adore, which is a dialogue on race and ethnicity, is going to be speaking about the proposed addition of an eighth principle to the founding seven principles that guide and ground Unitarian Universalism. We'd invite you to come and be part of that conversation. And then at three, our own Rochelle Fortier-Wadibia is gonna be speaking on US and our immigration system. Rochelle, who is an immigration attorney who's made precedent-setting law around asylum. She's a fantastic speaker, and I invite you to join us for that, too. And then on Sunday, after church next Sunday at 1 p.m., Reverend Leslie Takahashi, who's the senior minister of our congregation at Mount Diablo, and the former chair, or the outgoing chair, of the Unitarian Universalist Commission on Institutional Change is gonna be speaking about that commission's most recent report, Widening the Circle of Concern. All of these programs are rich and deep, and I'd encourage you to put them on your calendar and join. I wanna hold up just a couple of other things. We're going to be hosting a blood drive here in our center on the 19th, Tuesday of this month. They require, I think, around 15 to 19 signups in order to be able to follow through with that, and the need is great. I think we have five or six people already signed up but the sign-up link is in your order of service, and I'd invite you to look at that and come. They will be keeping the appointments safe, socially distanced, physically distanced, time distanced, so that you will be kept as healthy and protected as possible while you make this life-giving offering. So please consider it. Our auction two, I'd like to get that on your calendar, which is February 5th, but in advance, or Friday, February, but in advance to let you know about the upcoming deadlines around donations. So if you have something that you think would be a worthy donation to the auction and you're even just wondering whether it is, please reach out to our chairs, let them know about what you're considering and they will help 
guide you to fill out a form and help make the giving part of that auction possible. So for instance, you'll already see a note in your order of service about quality wine donations that will make possible one of the offerings at that auction. And finally, just a quick plug for small group ministry, which is gonna start again at the end of this month. A chance for anywhere from five to 10 people to gather regularly with deep questions to ask and check in to ground them, a way to connect and go deeper, the kinds of things and conversations that I think most of us come to community looking to have. So sign up or consider it. I believe that is all that I wanted to draw to your attention, though there are many fabulous opportunities that are in the order of service. Please investigate them all. Now I'd invite us to a breathing meditation led by Christine.
Please join me now in saying together the promises that we make to one another in this community, saying the words of our covenant printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world and in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. For the mounting trauma to children separated from their families. For all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances. In this repeat of some of the most ch shameful chapters in our nation's and our world history of xenophobia, racism, and greed. We ring the gong seven times for this week of days for which we bear responsibility as citizens for this violation of human dignity, for these wrongdoings done in our name. We ring our gong additionally, once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 77,000 384 people died of COVID-19 globally, and a staggering 19,819 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses, each one precious, whole, and worthy of love, health, and safety. And we hold in our hearts all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential service, those who suffer from loss of job, those whose lives are especially vulnerable to the disease, and all whose isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness become more difficult 
the longer this pandemic continues. Finally, we ring our gong once more this morning in love and solidarity with everyone who experienced an additional level of unsafety or trauma in the midst and in the aftermath of Wednesday's violent events at our Capitol. For all of us who are black, indigenous, people of color, who are Jewish, Muslim, or Sikh, for all of us who are survivors of trauma, police violence, or political upheaval, for our elected officials, for all experiencing levels of vicarious trauma that were part of watching the events unfold, we ring our gong. There is so much to remember and hold. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, however so we can. Holding the trauma of this week, in a prayer of protection, I share these words of prayer by Elizabeth Wynne. For black, indigenous, Muslim, Latina elected officials, for the residents of Washington, D.C., for each of us who has ever been handcuffed or tear-gassed or afraid of police, 
or white supremacists or of our government. For each of us who is afraid every day for ourselves or our loved ones or our children or this country, may we be protected. May we be protected from generations of violence and hate from pandemic and sickness and fear. May we be protected, not because we've earned it, but because of the generous grace of justice and spirit. And may those of us who can be protectors, protect, be pourers of tea for ourselves and others, builders of love for ourselves and others, reminders to breathe and eat and fight and tend, to rest and risk so we may all be protected. And in our doubt and stress, may we rest in the air and the earth and the sky that have seen governments come and go, despots and haters come and go, that hold our bones and our breath with sacredness and survival. Hold words from the Senator-elect Reverend Raphael Warnock. Will we play games while real people suffer or will we win righteous fights together shoulder to shoulder? Will we seek to destroy one another or heed the call toward the common good, building together what Dr. King called the beloved community? May it be survival and justice. May it be shoulder to shoulder. May it be beloved community. This is our prayer.
Much of my life, I have bucked norms. Running into the walls of small boxes that have been constructed to define human beings. Boxes that limit life forces that are alive and fluid and denying the use of gifts and talents because they don't belong in one's assigned box. I feel and acknowledge the devastating pain with people who have been hurt, dismissed, ridiculed, hated, beaten, and even killed because of someone's use of their religion and ignorant interpretations that decide who is and who isn't made in the image and likeness of God. A God made in their image. Being the third child and the third girl born into my family, I can imagine that already in the womb, I was hearing voices say to my dad, Joe, maybe this time you'll get your boy. I can imagine that as an infant, I would hear comments like, maybe next time you'll get your boy. I can imagine that the next time that as a toddler, I would hear people congratulating him that he finally got his boy, a brother I love very much. I can imagine and believe this was all unconscious. It was the norm in a world where males are generally seen as greater than. And I know I was undeniably loved. As I grew, so did the frustrating and painful impact of the walls that was male and what was female. When I'd go with my dad on the milk route as he delivered milk to stores, and the managers would see me following behind him carrying a milk case, they'd say, are you going to be a milkman like your dad when you grow up? And my dad would simply correct them. She's a girl. And then there was my church, the Catholic Church. Boys were altar servers, though I did break through that barrier for a bit. But only men can be deacons and priests. And though there was a brief period in the history when I could give homilies, the walls narrowed again and only the ordained can give a homily, which means, yep, the men and male interpretations. Before I became conscious of how the Bible was being used to condemn and deny and justify violence toward people who did not fit the norms of certain boxes, I experienced it. I felt the pain inside every time something that was my nature was deemed outside the norm or not permitted because it didn't fit in the pink box boldly lettered, 
female. I have cried my share of tears. I have resisted and challenged. Yet the older I got and the harsher the definitions and the judgments became in the church and in society, the more cautious and private I became. In many circumstances, I would say to myself, I'm not going to throw my pearls to the swine and risk them being trampled. I feared rejection and judgment. I felt and feel resistance that having to place myself inside or outside any box with limited or limiting definitions. Those around me know I just want to be Carmen. No titles, no hard-defined roles, or firmly walled boxes. Though there was an innate resistance and determination I seemed to be born with to navigate this world, through much of my life, I felt a kind of aloneness in the midst of a family and a community where I was loved and nurtured and provided for, there was a part of myself that I had to raise up alone and find an inner mentorship for. There was a kind of incongruency as I was loud and gregarious and a not-so-quiet life force from the start. Well, at the same time, I held certain pearls quietly and silently close to my heart. I wasn't always aware of the thirsty and alone places within me until I felt the rush of deep joy and gratitude and a tremendous relief run through my veins when I would encounter groups like Dignity USA, a Catholic organization whose mission is in quotes, to work for respect and justice for people of all sexual orientations, genders, and gender identities in the Catholic Church and in the world. Just the awareness alone that there were companions along the road who were working out loud gave me hope for a world that I longed for, along with Jesus, that all may have life and have it to the full. I would feel the same depth of emotion when I heard indigenous communities speak of two-spirit people, or when I came across the video titled, The Bible Tells Me So, when Christian families and pastors challenged the way scripture passages were being used to condemn and destroy lives and tear up families. Or when I came to San Francisco, and when I came to know this community that says out loud that we need to stand on the side of love. Tears of frustration and pain and anger still do flow as I witness and experience the violating and violent use of scripture and religion 
to define me or anyone, which promotes hate and discrimination. Yet, I have no doubt that I was loved into being by my parents, who were brought up inside the same boxes and limiting and distorted interpretations. I look in the mirror and see reflections of my father and my mother. I recognize traits and values from both of them that I am deeply grateful for. As I have not been destroyed, but only strengthened and emboldened for the work yet to be done, for all to have life and have it to the full.
Our reading this morning is by Anglican Bishop John Shelby Spong in his book, The Sins of Scripture. He writes, It has all the intensity of the final battle of Armageddon that's supposed to mark the end of the world. The opposing forces consider each other to be mortal enemies. There is no room for compromise between them, no middle ground, just mutually exclusive points of view. Threats and violence are readily employed as the tactics of intimidation. Both sides appeal to God and claim that this fight is waged in the name of all that is deemed holy. The stakes are thought to be so high that many people on both sides assert that Christianity will die if the other side prevails. Here ends our reading. Thank you.
The words from our reading this morning, they were written in 2005 by Bishop Shelby Spong. But with a few word changes, don't you think they could have been written about our political climate this last week or this last year building to this last week and the uncertain times just upon us? I mean, listen again to those words. The opposing forces consider each other to be mortal enemies. There is no room for compromise, no middle ground, just mutually exclusive points of view. Threats and violence are readily employed as the tactics of intimidation. And with a few very subtle uh, substitutions, it would end this way. But both sides appeal to ultimate authority and claim the fight is waged in the name of all that is true and right. The stakes are thought to be so high that many a people assert the nation will die if the other side prevails. Spong, of course, wasn't writing about political differences or party platforms, but he was writing about religious ones, right? And particularly, actually, he was writing in this passage about one issue, homosexuality. Fred Craddock, who is a modern classic, who wrote the modern classic on homiletics, said the preacher should almost never change her sermon to fit current events. Because the sermon, if it's aimed at timeless and enduring enough themes, it will certainly speak to the moment. Indeed, actually. It's been ironic how the sermon I intended to write and will somewhat still give this morning on homosexuality and the Bible feels riddled by the same forces underneath it all that riddle and tear at the fabric between us now. Years ago, I got a call from a local hospital. It is early in my ministry in Washington, D.C., actually, the city so under siege this week. That day is a quieter, personal siege that summons me to the phone. There is a young man, the nurse says to me on the other line. That man is in the psychiatric ward, self-admitted for extreme depression, and he wants to talk to the minister. He found you online, she says. The man has never been, it turns out, to a Unitarian Universalist church. Instead, he grew up Mormon. His story begins with two parents, lawyers, who would later, he said, be the senior legal advisors to the church at its headquarters in Salt Lake City. At the time he was born, however, they were serving in missionary assignments in Africa. That's where he was adopted. All this young man knew was the Mormon church. But while at university, he'd started to wonder about a part of himself, feelings and thoughts he was having tender and powerful and important feelings and thoughts, and not knowing what else to do about them, he'd started reading and researching online what it meant to be gay. His Mormon roommate, for reasons that are still a mystery, spied on this man's internet search history and finding sites that were gay-friendly and focused, outed the young man's investigations to the elders, at the Mormon college they attended, the elders in turn 
reported all this to the young man's family, and his parents gave him an ultimatum. Leave these thoughts behind, or leave the church behind. The young man said he argued with his parents, explained that he was only doing research, that he hadn't done anything yet or made any choices, that there wasn't anything wrong with trying to understand what was going on with him. But they forbade even these questions. And he made the most devastating, or at least most difficult, I would imagine, choice of his life certainly till that point. He left the church. He did so though when doing so also meant that he was shunned. And so in a moment, this young man, vibrant and connected to his community in every way whose university life even revolved around the church, stood completely alone. He was maybe 20, and when he called me, all he had were his questions and his desire for integrity to wrap around his bare shoulders. Hence the call. The same curiosity in online searches that landed this man ostracized from his past led him to me and to us. So we talked. On a couple of occasions we talked. We talked about religion a lot. We talked about God, the God I understood, the one the Universalists said and risked their lives to say was known first and foremost by love, a love that would not let any of us go. We talked about a God who would see his whole being and rejoice, both in who he might love and in the gorgeousness and courageousness of his life and his love. We spoke of a religious community, mine, yours and mine, where questioning is a sacred duty and so was living into our answers boldly all this I did and do believe. And around this issue and all issues, I could be guilty of the same mistakes as those I heartily critique and disagree with around this issue. I could refuse to look at the facts which for this man were grounded in scripture, one of which we shared a connection to. So the young man and I also talked about the scripture and what it has to say around this issue. Biblical evidence I had gathered for debunking the prejudice that was doing him such great harm. In his book, A Year of Living, The Year of Living Biblically, A.J. Jacobs meets a man, Ralph Blair, who started a group called Evangelicals Concerned in 1975. Blair is gay, and he's also an evangelical Christian. 
And Blair challenges his faith tradition about where they got things wrong, where they used religion to justify cultural prejudices, rather than seeing where the religion that they claimed to believe in should have called them to challenge cultural prejudices and set new ones. And Blair looks for evidence wherever he can find it and holds it up. Jacobs, for instance, describes one of Ralph's pamphlets with its headline on the front, What Jesus Said About Homosexuality. And when you open up the pamphlet, <laughs> there's a blank page. Because in fact, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. According to the four gospel accounts of the life and sayings of the man Jesus, this prophet, teacher, rabbi, talked about a lot of things, and passionately so. He talked about the need to care for the poor, the orphan, to free the captive, liberate oneself from moral haughtiness and the evils of judging others. He talked about surrendering what is sacred for material gain and worldly expedience. And he talks a lot about the command, sacred and overarching all others, to love one another, which includes refusing all kinds of prejudices. But the person of Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality once. To me, if you're a Christian, especially a progressive one, that's the beginning and the end of this conversation. But we can address for a moment other justifications that might be used. Like, for instance, the bits of Leviticus, otherwise called the Code of Holiness in the Hebrew Scriptures that's often quoted. The same code that says that you should stone your mother for working on Saturday. And when you sell your daughter into slavery, which is permitted in Exodus, what would be a good price for the sale? Which is to say that this is a text whose codes include scores of mandates that we ourselves would never adhere to or want to adhere to. So to begin there is to adopt a cafeteria-style approach of picking out only the homophobic texts, which seems not only odd, but morally suspicious at best. There are also mentions often held up forbidding same-sex relations, it appears, in some of the letters of Paul or credited to Paul. But there's a lot of speculation about he meant what he meant when he used the words he did in those letters. That they could well be references to practices of Roman and other communities that are outside the bounds of what we would consider consensual relations, for instance. Or on the other hand, that they might be reference to cultic practices at the time that I know I wouldn't want enshrined in my religious community and its practices. But also, 
Paul isn't the prophet, teacher, rabbi whose teachings and life I find compelling and central. And Paul is flawed, as you and I are, as a prophet and interpreter of tradition. And I don't know, thank God our letters haven't been canonized for all time. I mean, really, thank God. More important to me is that there are lots of philosophical and religious traditions that believe that sacred texts are alive, are meant to be alive, and that our understanding should evolve and deepen. And there is plenty of evidence that it has, that that is the way we human beings have lived in relationship to our texts through time and should. We know as a nation we justified slavery, found that justification in the Bible and the subjugation of women too, and some, some still do, but that the vast majority of us see now that that was our own small-heartedness and prejudice read in sometimes absurdly aggressive ways into texts that we don't read or see that way anymore. The key to finding our way out of such prejudices and self-reinforcing ignorance and all the harm that gets done when we do that, it seems to me, is just to stay curious and humble in the face of the biggest claims we make in life. To investigate especially even maybe the claims and evidence and arguments of those who would disagree with us. This week, we saw all the harm of the opposite way of being play itself out, didn't we? We saw the danger of digging in one's moral and intellectual heels and refusing to examine the texts, the facts, to listen. To do so, even as your allies in positions of power around the country, judges, and representatives and election officials who were supposed, who were exposed to the so-called evidence and arguments, even though they called you to see how they and you with them had been misled, had been drawn into both prejudice and lies, and asked to sacrifice your most sacred, shared national commitments as a result. Oh, the tired scripts that we human beings seem to play out. Hubris, the tendency for confirmation bias to see only what confirms what you already believe. <laughs> like saying the world is flat until an astronaut orbits you around the entire planet and and even then maybe dreaming all that was a hoax. Or calling COVID-19 a lie until your neighbor or husband or you find yourself on a ventilator, but not before. 
for sure. For sure, there is a humbling vulnerability in seriously questioning what you knew or you thought you knew and relied on. I'm sure we've all had one or more of those moments. But those moments, we also know what a righteous life looks like, really. That it isn't about grandstanding and breaking windows and erecting gallows on public land. And it is not about selfishly upending the compact of shared government and national texts to get your way. No. True, righteousness is courageous and bold, but it's the kind of boldness that's grounded in a deep humility. The kind that wonders when carnage is the price we are willing to pay for our truths, wonders in that moment whether maybe ego or greed or ignorance or fear or hate has crept its way into our moral equation. And wakes instead to a faithfulness to healing and wholeness. Frankly, righteousness is more like what I heard on the other side of that phone so many years ago from a man barely 20 years of age. That courage of being willing to leave everything else behind even. Everything you knew and had relied on because you came to know that truth as false, as heartbreaking as it might be in that moment to come to that realization, as much as it would upend your life and to choose instead to face whatever followed from what you came to know as true. Even if all it left you with in that moment was honesty and integrity to wrap around your shoulders as you began again. The other way, any other way, as we have seen, is to choose, to quote the Bible, to possibly gain the whole world but lose your soul. This summer, I got another call from a teenager who would name and echo back 25 years something that I hoped had died out. A young person struggling with some tender new understanding of themselves, who shared that nascent understanding with three close friends whose faith they said meant that they could not be supportive. Echoes of a moral certainty that was willing to destroy lives and sacrifice what is truly sacred, our care and tending and love for one another rather than question on what ground it was that they stood. When will we learn? 
So this morning, let's ring our gong one final time. For those of us in this community and beyond who have been harmed by or in the name of religion and a false and hateful certainty, for all who've been wounded by toxic theology, the weaponizing of religious language or the distortion of sacred texts, for all whose authentic selves were not welcomed or honored in religious community, and for the defamation of community itself when it is defined by exclusion and judgment. We hold in our hearts, especially the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary, and intersex members of our community. May we live into the call as a faith community to heal this collective wound. And may we move toward the call to radical welcome, to beloved community, that we, I hope, are becoming together evermore among us and beyond us in the world we touch. So for healing and wholeness, we ring our gong one last time this morning. And now in our comings and our goings. May the light of love shine upon us, out from within us. Be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.